There we go. The great thing about uh, feedback is that one of our members, Lisa Sparks, had said, hey, you know what? You should still do a children's message. And I thought, that's a great idea. And then when I was thinking about it earlier, my wife said, I want to do it. So here we go. <laughs> we're all children of God. So today we're going to review this most special week called Holy Week. And you may not be able to see what is written on the signs, but we basically have the big three days. Right here it says Palm Sunday, because that's what we're celebrating today. Over here it says Monday, Thursday, and over there it says Good Friday. So we're briefly going to review Holy Week for all of us. So when you think of Jesus, he's a pretty, pretty important guy. He's pretty famous. Um, if you think of famous people today... Maybe you would think that they, like, dress fancy and, and ride in, in really, really fancy cars or limousines. Uh, they have a lot of power. Um, so I'm going to pretend to be Cher for a moment. <laughs> Not that she's that famous today anymore, but... <laughs> This is back in our day. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. Okay, so famous people, they maybe dress really fancy and drive fancy cars, and everybody looks to what they do. But Jesus wasn't that kind of famous person. They wanted him to be famous and ride in on a horse, but he didn't. <laughs> Jesus was much different. So we have to ride in on a donkey. Donkeys are usually kind of brown, and they have a, a tail. Okay, so the, the, Jesus rode in a donkey, but there were some really special things that they put down. All the people, they put down palm branches, and we have lots of palm branches. I wish I could give them to you all right now. We have lots of palm branches. And so they put down palm branches, and they also put down their coats because they wanted Jesus to have a special way to ride into town. So he rode in on the donkey, and they, he walked along the road, along the palm branches, and along the coats because he was humble. He was so different from the kind of celebrities that we might think about today. He was humble. And he, he was so humble that on Monday, Thursday, he actually took a bowl of water and a towel and he washed the disciples' feet. Now, that was a job for the lowly slaves. That was not something that the king of the universe should be doing, right? But he gave us an example that we should always be about humility, just like the donkey was a sign of humility. Humility and service, loving our fellow, fellow people. Something else he did on that night that's very special is he took the cup of wine and he took bread and he broke it. This um, 
This plaque actually says, give us this day our daily bread. And it reminds me that Jesus is the bread of life. And he gave his whole life for us on the cross so that we could be saved. And that's exactly what Good Friday is all about. There were some huge nails that they poured, pointed through his feet and his hands to hold him to the cross. And he willingly gave up his life so that we could have life. We could be forgiven. So that's a little synopsis of Holy Week. And there's more, though. After Jesus died on the cross, there's more to the story. But we're going to have to wait till next Sunday for that part of the story. So could you pray with me? Dear Jesus, Dear Jesus thank you, thank you. For, being for being an example, an example. of humility, and service, service for giving your life, for giving your life so, that we so that we could have eternal life. Could have eternal life. We, love you, we love you. We thank you. We thank you and we ask you to lead us to serve others. In Jesus' name. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. As our screen says, Jesus humbled himself. Or if you're looking on this side, Jesus humbled himself. How true. And as I was reading through the book of Ephesians a little bit this week, um, chapter 4, verse 2 says this Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Such an important message. Now, Ephesians 4, amazingly, comes after chapters 1, 2, and 3, which remind us of what God has done for us in Jesus. We are united with Christ. We are in Christ Jesus, and that's significant. Hope to bring you back to that later. We are in Jesus. What has Jesus done? Well, he's humbled himself, as Paul writes to the Philippians. He's humbled himself so much that he would take, the role, take on flesh. God, Jesus, who is God, took on flesh. He lived a perfect life in our place. And his humility also allowed him to go, as the Father wanted, to the cross to suffer and die for you and for me. And therefore, now that we've seen what he has done for us in making us new, now we also can, as it says here, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, as we think about that a little bit more, I'd like to uh, bring you to a book I, I shared with you last time, a little book called Humilitas by John Dixon. And I'm going to talk about what humility is, according to what John writes. He says this, Humility is the noble choice to forego your status. Remember, Jesus as God didn't count equality with God, with God something to be grasped. Okay? to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. More simply, you could say the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service of others. And isn't that exactly what God has done for us in Jesus? Doesn't he show that kind of humility 
for us? There are three thoughts, then, in this definition. First, humility presupposes your dignity. Humility presupposes your dignity. Now, I find that really interesting because there's a wonderful young man that I'm talking with and just sharing, and, and he grew up in the church but is no longer going to a church. And wonderful man, he's willing even to, to talk with me. I'm reading one of his books he wants me to read, and he's reading one of my books I wanted him to read. And I, I brought up this little quote out of Humilitas. It shows up later in his book, and it says this, How can atheism guarantee the dignity of humanity, which is needed in a proper definition of humility. Believers and atheists alike can feel small and overawed by a majestic universe, but feeling small is not the same as being humble. Humility assumes the inherent dignity of the one being humble. It is lowering of oneself from a height. Atheism certainly promotes a low view of humanity. How much lower can you get than thinking of yourself as an accidental byproduct of a series of even larger accidents. You see, we as people of God, we as followers of Jesus, understand that we, you and I, all of you out there, we have great worth. We are made in God's image. Do you ever think on that and dwell on that and just smile from ear to ear? That's who you are. You are made in God's image image. You have great dignity. You have great worth. And therefore, what we can do is we can truly humble ourselves. A rock can't humble itself. It's just a rock. We can humble ourselves. And listen to what it goes on to say. And this is a part that I got wrong for 40-some uh, years of my life. The one being humble acts from a height, so to speak, as the lowering makes clear. True humility assumes the dignity or strength of the one possessing the virtue, which is why it should not be confused with having a low self-esteem or being a doormat for others. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it is impossible to be humble in the real sense without a healthy sense of your own worth and ability. You're God's amazing creation. Or as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. But then it goes on and says, second, humility is willing. It's a choice. Jesus didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he chose to become a servant, to take on flesh. And then third, I like this point as well. Finally, humility is social. It is not a private act of self-deprecation, banishing proud thoughts, refusing to talk about your achievements, and so on. I would call this simple modesty. But humility is about redirecting your powers, whether physical, intellectual, financial, or structural, structural for the sake of others. And that's what Philippians talks about. Humility is more about how I treat others than how I think about myself. I haven't thought that way for most of my life. When I reread that book, that really stuck out to me. Humility is more about how I'm thinking about and treating those around me rather than how I think about myself. Right? 
When I go around saying, look how awful I am, I'm constantly focused on me. But when I lose myself into love and to serve and to uplift and exalt other people, making a big deal about who God is, that's when I get a chance to live in the humility. That's what Jesus was about. And we're invited to be like Jesus today, although you'll fail. Right? Hate to be a bearer of bad news, but you're not only a person of great dignity, you're also a person of great depravity. And I can call you and, and say, let's live this new way. And you'll be able to think through this past week. Did you have any time this past week when God gave you some opportunities to be humble? And you were like, no, no, thanks. Pride fits me better today. Anybody like that? See, we're a mix. That's why we need to walk with Jesus. Remember my walking with Jesus? Abiding and repenting. So we stick with Jesus. We remember who we are in Christ. And when we fail and our depravity shows, then we repent. And we don't try harder. Stop trying harder. Just go to Jesus and say, here, Jesus, this isn't hard. Here's my sins. Or maybe that is really hard. Or maybe that's just the first hard part. The second hard part is be able to receive from him the forgiveness of those sins. You know what makes it so hard? Not being humble. My pride. My pride says, I can do it myself, thank you. I don't think you know what you're doing, God. I'll have to help you out here. But Jesus calls us to humility. Then, one other thing I'd like to share with you, and it comes from this book called Pastor and Counseling. And it was really convicting for me. It goes like, now again, I like to be a fixer, and I sometimes struggle with anger. And I know I can't see your faces this morning, I really wish I could. But I'm probably not the only person here who's a fixer, and I'm probably not the only person here who struggles sometimes with anger. Listen to what uh, this author, I can't think of who this author is, but he writes Pastor and Counseling. He says this, personally caring for your people, so he's writing to pastors, personally caring for your people will make your prayers more dependent, more dependent on God. Nothing feels more futile than talking a depressed person out of despondency or an anorexic girl out of her unrealistic self-assessment. One of the best ways to feel your inability to change anything is giving counsel to abuse victims or perpetrators, to people with stubborn attitudes or foggy minds, to those who despise you in the Bible you're opening. Coming alongside people in impossible circumstances will be a constant reminder to the pastor of his need for the God of the impossible. And why that's so convicting to me is there's been times in my life and my relationship with Pat where she wants to desperately help me. I'm in one of my moods. I'm down. I'm sad about something. And in those moments, she wants to be able to help me. And I say, I just need two things, space and prayer, space and prayer. How many of you, when you're dealing with someone that you know and love, how many of you are satisfied with just offering that person space and prayer? And yet, 
isn't it a truly humbling thing for you and for me to recognize that I can't fix this other person? I can't take them out of their despondency. I can't change their struggle. The anorexic girl is already super thin but thinks she weighs too much. Is this making sense at all? We're humbled because God says, not your job. Bring it to me. We're like that person at, right after the Lord's Prayer, that story about the person where someone comes and it's late at night and they don't have anything to take care of that person. So they go to their neighbor and they keep knocking on the door saying, get up and give me something. He doesn't want to because he's already in bed with his kids, but because the knocking never stops. He gets up and takes care of the need. The door you and I are supposed to knock on is heaven's door. Dear Jesus, would you fix what I can't even touch? And instead of me getting frustrated with the person or getting angry about something, how about I just recognize that you're trying to humble me, God, and help me see that this is more than I can take care of and how dependent, how utterly dependent, how absolutely, utterly dependent I am Almighty God, on you. Be completely humbled and gentle. Listen to what it says again in, in Ephesians 4, 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Every time those words from my wife, how can I help you? And I say, give me space and pray. Every time I deal with someone and I start to become frustrated and I try and fix things, I need to remember what my wife felt like so God can help humble me. Okay, Pastor, all good and fine with his humility thing, but how does, this, how does that actually impact what we're going through with this pandemic? I'm so glad you asked. Thank you. March 8th of Philip Yancey's book, Grace Notes. We've used this one before. He writes this. During a tumultuous week in 2008 in which global stock markets declined by $7 trillion, I got a call from Time Magazine. How should a person pray during a crisis like this? The editor asked. As we spoke, we came up with a three-stage approach to prayer. The first stage is simple an instinctive cry for help. Wouldn't that be great? As we sit at home, as we're isolated, as we're struggling, as we can't go and do different things, some of us have lost our jobs. Some of us are struggling in our businesses. All these things are going on. The first thing we do is we say, Dear God, help. It's a crisis. I need you. It's kind of like the disciples in the boat. And they said, and they woke up Jesus, Lord, don't you care? Here, here's our need. But don't stop there. Look at Jesus' prayer to Ge in Gethsemane. With sweat falling like blood, he felt overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. His prayer, however, changed from take this cup from me to may your will be done. Prayer relieved him of anxiety, reaffirmed his trust in a loving father, and emboldened him to face the cross. If I pray with intent to listen as well as talk, I can enter into a second stage that of meditation and reflection. Okay, my life savings has virtually disappeared. Okay, I can't go out and do different things with other people. 
okay, other people that I know and love, like the pastor that ordained me into the ministry, has the coronavirus. But another pastor that I know and care about, know a little bit, his name is Eric. He actually spoke at the uh, men's retreat that we do. And he's actually dying from something else at a very young age. What can I learn from this seeming catastrophe? A Sunday school song came to mind. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the wise man's house stood firm. And then the foolish man built his house upon the sand. Oh, the rain came down and the floods came up. A time of crisis presents a good opportunity to identify the foundation on which I construct my life. If I place my ultimate trust in financial security or in the government's ability to solve my problems, I will surely watch the house crumble and the foolish man's house went splat. Do you take time during this crisis while you're home to say, Dear God, I am whatever. And by the way, while we're, we're talking about, dear God, I am, wouldn't it be so cool if you and I started to pray like, remember what happened, I think we talked about it last week or the week before, with Lazarus died. And the sisters sent word to Jesus and they said, Lord, the one you love is sick. Wouldn't it be great if you and I, what we did, when we prayed for ourselves, when we prayed for our loved ones, this we would say, Lord, the one you love. Would you all do that with me right now? Take that pointy finger and point at yourself. Lord, the one you love. Lord, the one you love. That's me. That's you. That's those others that you care about. Lord, the one you love is isolated, is sick, is dying, is scared, is worried, is angry. Lord, the one you love. And then when you're past that, maybe the second part of that prayer then is, dear God, help me to see what my life is built on. And if it's built on anything besides you, help me jump off the sand and onto the rock. Humble me enough to see that i got to stop doing it my own way. And then it goes on to say this. The same week of financial collapse... I didn't check this out, but I, I trust the author. Zimbabwe's inflation rate, the rate of inflation, hit a record 231 million percent. Which leads me to the third stage of prayer in crisis times. I need God's help in taking my eyes off my own problems in order to look with compassion on the truly desperate. In the days of a collapsing Roman Empire, Christians stayed behind to nurse plague victims. And wet nurses gathered up babies abandoned along the roadside. What a testimony it would be if during hard times, Christians resolved to increase the giving to build houses for the poor, combat AIDS in Africa, and announce kingdom values to a decadent, celebrity-driven culture. And do what one older man in Italy did as he gave his respirator to a young person. And then he died. What can we do to look out for others in need? Are we praying for those people in other nations where the coronavirus is already going? 
who don't have near the medical facilities and the help that we have. Are we praying for them? Wouldn't it be helpful for us to humble ourselves from our own thoughts and ways to those others in need? You know, what Jesus did is he humbled himself before three groups of people. He humbled himself before the crowds. And they were all there because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They were there because this is a miracle worker. This has got to be the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. He's going to set us free. Jesus humbled himself before those who would misunderstand. Jesus also humbled himself before his disciples. And it says in that scripture, in that gospel lesson, that they just didn't understand until later when Jesus rose from the dead what was happening there. So Jesus humbles himself before those who misunderstand. Jesus humbles himself before those who simply don't understand yet, like us sometimes. And Jesus humbled himself before those who would never want to understand. Remember what the religious leaders were saying? Look, the whole world's gone after him. We're going to lose all of our power. And the next text goes on to about the Greeks wanting to see Jesus. Amazing. And so Jesus humbles himself, not because he knows he's going to get the right response from everybody. How many times aren't you and I directed to, to do what we do sometimes because we know what the response is going to be, or if the response isn't what we want, we stop doing it? That's why I try and remind others, and I do a horrible job of reminding myself, that when I live my life, I'm responding to God as I love other people rather than loving other people and hoping for a certain response. I know that's the truth. I struggle to live in it. When I'm responding to God in his great love and mercy for me and how I treat other people, it humbles me. And finally, my last little piece for you comes from one of our members, and she gave me permission to share it. So if you don't want me to share it, you better quick text me right now but otherwise it's coming. This is from Linda Hackney. I said, how's it going? And she said, it's been a crazy week with an emotional roller coaster on full speed every minute of every day. I haven't been sleeping well at all. Last night after prayer and meditation, I went to bed. Praying for sleep was one of my prayers and had the best night's sleep in probably three weeks. And then she wrote, also, one night when... Sorry, one night when I was seriously stressing and having physical manifestations of that stress, I was feeling badly for not being able to trust God enough. Then I thought of Jesus as he was praying that God would take this cup from him. He was certainly stressed. I went to work and talked with one of her um, employees, name is Luis, about this, feeling certain that my distrust was now somehow okay. Then he reminded me, but what did Jesus say at the end? I stated, not my will, but yours be done. Aha! And so that has been my mantra after each of my pleadings. Just like Jesus prayed, not my will, so we can pray, not my will today. And then she goes on to write this. By the way, I've had... Two updates from my bank today regarding the PPP loan, which I, I think it has to do with uh, payroll loans. 
because she has eight employees at least. They just started processing a handful of applications to help uh, figure out the whole process and then should be fully online with it soon. If I can get that, it means I can hopefully ride the storm for two months with her business. If things improve by then, hopefully we will be okay. If not, then I've not lost anything much by trying. But hey, not my will, but God's will be done. Am I right? Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a great example that Linda's learned from Jesus that now we can learn from Linda? And you know what? If I asked Mark right now, does Linda always do that perfectly? I hope right now Mark is smiling and probably says, well, probably not always. Just like you won't always do it perfectly, right? And that's why we need to remember that those words I t shared with you earlier. What Ephesians says early on is, you and I, we are in Christ. Jesus always did everything perfectly, even humility. You know, we're humans. You know what our, our, uh, our desire, our, our fallback position is? When we're humble, we get proud about our humility. Right? I was so humble today. Jesus never goes there. And so I want you to rejoice with me that we are found, because of what Jesus did as he went his way into Jerusalem, and then what happened in Jerusalem, and what we'll celebrate early, earlier on, or later on this week, and then next week, we'll celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Jesus, the truly humble one, in whom we ourselves are humbled so that we can actually be about what Ephesians 4.2 says. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Amen?